Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love endures forever. For He is good, He is above all things. His love endures forever. Sing praise. Sing praise. Put a mighty hand and outstretched arm. and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. So oh. 
neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, neither height nor depth, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, love that is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. through select stories in Genesis, from creation to Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. Jacob has stolen the birthright, run away from his family, and made his way east to Haran. He's been sent there to find a wife from among his mother's relatives and has just been introduced to Laban, his uncle. And we pick up the story now in Genesis 29, starting at verse 15. Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So it's been a delight having our youth help lead worship this morning. 2020 has affected us all in different ways, but I've often thought that it must be particularly challenging for our students and teens. This is the age for branching out, not staying at home. When I asked them about this, one of them, classic Gen Z, responded with a meme. I miss people, places, and things. So, nouns. I essentially miss nouns. I gotta confess, the memes are one of the best things to come out of 2020. My neighbor thinks someday there'll be a museum dedicated to this, and I kinda hope she's right. This is a messy year. Clearly, one of the ways we deal with that mess is humor. We're doing the best we can. We're laughing where we can. But there's much that we miss, and much that has been hard on all of us. And into that messy reality, the lectionary this week gives us this ancient story about a polygamous marriage. So we'll see what we do with that. The tale of Jacob and Rachel is a love story. Well, sort of. From the moment Jacob and Rachel meet, we're set up to expect romance. After all, the last time someone journeyed to Haran in search of a bride, the woman at the well was the one. This was how Jacob's parents met. Now it's how Jacob meets Rachel, and it's love at first sight, right? But it's not the same scene as the generation prior. Last time, Abraham's servant came purposefully, prayerfully, asking that God would guide him to a woman who would make a good wife for Isaac. Last time, Rebecca purposefully spent time in deliberation before agreeing to go. There's no evidence of such purpose here. There's an air of youthful infatuation to Jacob's interest in Rachel, and we never hear how Rachel felt. And while Abraham's servant came laden with gifts, Jacob arrives in Haran empty-handed. He's got no bride price to offer to Laban in exchange for his daughter's hand. Laban. At first, he embraces Jacob and welcomes him into his home. My own flesh and blood, he cries, echoing Adam and Eve. Come stay with us. What a generous and hospitable guy to have as an uncle and eventually father-in-law. But Laban is tricky and opportunistic. Within a month, Jacob is essentially turned into an indentured servant working to pay off a bride price. When Jacob asks to marry Rachel, Laban's response is sneaky and ambiguous. Better to give her to you than to someone else. Her. She's not named. And Jacob is none the wiser. Jacob offers to work for Laban for seven years. He's clearly in no hurry to get home. And he's so in love with Rachel that it seems to him just a few days. A few days. It's an echo of his mother's instructions. Go to Haran and stay a few days with my brother Laban until Esau's rage subsides, then you can come back home to us. But as Jacob's days turn into years, his beloved mother is aging, and he will never see her again. After the seven years are up, Jacob demands his wife for sex. Laban says nothing, but starts preparing a wedding feast. That night, drunk and in the dark, Jacob gets his sex, just not with Rachel. There's a delicious literary irony to the whole scene. Jacob, the deceiver, has met his nemesis. Jacob, 
who spent his whole life contending with his brother Esau. Jacob, the younger, who pretended to be Esau, the older, to steal the birthright. Jacob, who colluded with his mother, lies to his father, enraged his brother, and destroyed his family. Jacob, who ran away to Haran to escape from it all. But he can't escape himself. Mistaken identity, rivalry between siblings, a younger favorite, a firstborn with rights that get in the way of what Jacob wants, duplicity and its bitter consequences. It's all here. And in the Hebrew, the word for serve keeps showing up. It's a key part of Isaac's blessing that Jacob stole. Esau is supposed to serve him. But here in Laban's household, Jacob is the one serving. And we get reminded of that seven times. When morning comes, Jacob is livid. What have you done? Why did you deceive me? But Laban is equally outraged. His response is not just a simple, oh, oh, we don't do that here. It's indignant. This is a custom that is fundamental to the functioning of society. How dare Jacob expect that to be supplanted? Though it's obvious to the reader, Laban gives no indication that he's been duplicitous about the whole thing. He strikes a new deal with Jacob. Finish the wedding week with Leah. Then you can have Rachel, provided you work another seven years, of course. So Jacob ends up married to two sisters, one entirely begrudgingly and by mistake, one adored enough to merit 14 years of work. It's hard to ignore the cultural distance between us and this narrative. What do we do with the patriarchy and polygamy, let alone the casual mention of servants given to the girls as wedding gifts? In the male-centered telling of this story, there's so much that we don't know about these women. But they are named, the sisters and the servants. And all four of them are honored as the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and we are made to feel for Leah, the sister with the unlovely eyes, the unwanted bride, a scriptural home for all the women who are passed over in favor of someone else deemed more beautiful or desirable. The story will go on to tell of Leah's childbearing, her struggle to get her husband's attention, and her journey of faith told in the names of her children. Reuben, God has seen my misery. Simeon, God has heard. Leah here joins Hagar and Hannah and the people of Israel enslaved in Egypt and many more in scripture and in history who come to know the God who sees them and hears their cries. So Leah calls her fourth son, Judah, praise. There's something profoundly human about this story. The culture may be different, but I don't think we have to look hard to find aspects of ourselves that we recognize. Love, sex, marriage, work, family, conflict, misunderstanding, rejection, jealousy, rivalry, youthfulness and growing up, finding place, building a life. And God isn't mentioned at all in this passage. 
Not long ago, Jacob met God at Bethel in a dramatic dream. He sees a stairway to heaven, hears God's voice, and finds himself on holy ground. And soon, on his way back to Canaan, Jacob will meet a man in the dark and find himself wrestling with God himself. Jacob's journey is framed by these strange nighttime encounters with the divine. But here in Haran, well, Jacob gets busy. There's no indication that Jacob even thinks of God at all. It's a, it's a lot, you know, work, family. I've been slowly working my way through the Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Warren. I know a bunch of you read it a few years ago, and I'm late to the party, but you were right. It's excellent. A great book to take out on the back porch and read a few pages at a time whenever the kids are happily playing and mostly leaving me alone. Warren writes about the formative power of ordinary moments. In her chapter on confession, she, she tells the story of losing her keys one morning and working her way through the stages of searching for lost objects. Stage one, logic. Where did I see them last? Stage two, self-condemnation. I'm such an idiot, how could I lose my keys? Stage three, vexation. I bet the kids played with them and lost them. Or maybe my husband took it. Why isn't he answering my texts? Stage four, desperation. Frantic searching in random places that don't make sense. Stage five, last ditch. Prayer to God and, and to the patron saint of lost things, just in case. Stage six, despair. This is stupid. Everything is stupid and hopeless, and I quit. Minutes later, she finds the keys under the couch. These are her words. My last keys ended up being a hiccup in the day. No big deal, a tiny, forgettable 15 minutes. But it was also the apocalypse. Apocalypse literally means an unveiling or uncovering. In my anger, grumbling, self-berating, cursing, doubt, and despair, I glimpsed for a few minutes how tightly I cling to control and how little control I actually have. And in the absence of control, feeling stuck and stressed, those parts of me that I prefer to keep hidden were momentarily unveiled. Apocalypse. I think it's a good word for this year for 2020, apocalypse. Not in the usual sense of doomsday and end times, although there's plenty in this year to make you think about that. But apocalypse in the sense of unveiling, uncovering, seeing clearly, seeing ourselves more clearly. This is perhaps the unsettling gift that 2020 has given us. Strip away the busyness the excess, the entertainment, the stuff that crowds our days and props up our sense of self and worth. Sit at home, stay at home. See the birds, the flowers, the sunsets. See too the mess, the people, the isolation that we live with every day. And in the relative stillness, through the channels that still connect us, listen. Listen to grief. Listen to fear. 
Listen to the stories and the voices that challenge what you thought you knew, what you thought was true, and sit in that discomfort without being able to fix it, without being able to make it go away. It's hard. It's hard to see ourselves so exposed, like Adam and Eve in the garden, naked and ashamed, like Jacob in the tent. But what if these moments of painful revelation are just as essential to our faith and transformation as the Bethel moments? John Calvin would say they are. Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion opens with this statement. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And for Calvin, these two are necessarily held in tandem. On the one hand, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. And that self-knowing requires some degree of discomfort with ourselves. Here's John Calvin. We are prompted by our own ills to contemplate the good things of God, and we cannot seriously aspire to him before we begin to become displeased with ourselves. The knowledge of ourselves not only arouses us to seek God, but also, as it were, leads us by the hand to find him. But the, con the converse is also true. Without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. Here's Calvin again. It is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. For, such is our innate pride, we always seem to ourselves just and upright and wise and holy until we are convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly, and impurity. Convinced, however, we are not if we look to ourselves only and not to the Lord also. This is why in so many theophanies in scripture, so many angel visitations and holy ground moments, we find men and women on their knees, overcome with fear and dread. And why so often from on high, the word of grace comes. Don't be afraid. That was Jacob last week at Bethel. He saw God. And now in Laban, God allows Jacob to see himself, almost like holding up a mirror. This, this is how you treated your father, your brother. This, this is how it feels. This is who you are. Now there's no immediate recognition on Jacob's part, at least as far as we can tell. There's no cry of repentance, no erasure of this character flaw from Jacob's life. There's no indication that anything profound is happening at all. It's only in retrospect, looking back, that we see the providence of God in the slow outworking of his promises in Jacob's life, warts and all. In the words of one commentator, God's work here descended deeply into the lowest worldliness, and there was hidden past recognition. And maybe that, in this strange and messy year, is the most hopeful word of all. Genesis is one of the five books of the Torah, the law, 
Throughout the Old Testament, the people of God are called to write the law, the Torah, on their hearts, meditate on it, let it shape and form and fashion them. We usually think of the law as rules. But it's interesting to me how much of the Torah, the law, is narrative, story. They're not just there for history or curiosity or entertainment. They're Torah, and Torah is meant to be instructive. It's meant to get inside you, change how you see, become your story. And this story about Jacob is the story of the origins of the people of Israel, Jacob's namesake nation. How many times in Scripture does God identify himself to them as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Jacob is solidly a patriarch but he's clearly not a saint. Torah doesn't hold up perfect people as if there was such a thing for us to emulate. It tells the story of the fathers and mothers of the faith, and they are real and flawed. Sometimes they make terrible mistakes and say terrible things and treat people terribly. And they'd probably get canceled today. But they are also recipients of the promises and providence of God, and the ones who carry that down through history to us. The same Leah in the tent that morning is the mother of Levi and Judah, of the priesthood and the monarchy. And Jacob the swindler is their father. The lesson of Torah, of course, is not it's not just the patriarchs. Look at Israel, look at its kings, look at its people, Look at the disciples of Jesus. Look at the early church. Look around. Look in the mirror. All through history, people have been less than savory, twisted, even cruel. Yet all through history, God has sustained and saved those very people. And not just that, but made them integral parts of his redemptive work in the world. And that's worth remembering. Because as we crawl our way through 2020, it seems there are lots of reasons to despair. It's become almost trendy to give up, to write it all off, to stand aloft and survey all that's broken around us with disdain and blame. Depending on where you stand, the prevailing story that's told is either one of a society in decline or a society that stubbornly refuses to progress. It's hard these days to be a people of hope. But Torah tells a different story. It's no less honest about all that is wrong. But the story of scripture, even the ugly, ordinary pieces of ugly, ordinary lives, is ultimately a story of the providence and promises of God. So take courage. When the curtain is rolled back around the world around you, even when the mirror is in front of you and it hurts to see what and who you really are. Because the truth is you will never be good enough. You will never be woke enough. You'll make bad decisions. You'll lose friends or lose touch with friends. You'll hurt people you love. You are human. And yes, you are deeply flawed. But the answer is not to wallow in shame and guilt. That's not the gospel, and that's not the pathway to justice and flourishing. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. 
Instead, let a deeper knowledge of self lead you to a deeper knowledge of the God who blesses and forgives and saves and slowly, slowly transforms. You are seen. You are loved. Even when the worst of yourself is exposed, you are carried by grace and providence and part of God's good purpose in the world. So take your everyday, ordinary, unspectacular life and trust that God is quietly at work, at work in you, at work around you, at work even in this hurting, groaning world, and he is making all things new. Amen. Please pray with us. Lord, you are a God who lavishes us with love through the blessings of family and friends, homes, clean water, and healthy food, medical help, and spiritual growth, and safety in our daily lives, enabling us to thrive. We know that in all things you work for the good of those who love you and who have been called according to your purpose. Nothing can separate us from God's love. We thank you, God, for the birth of Wyatt Artema Butt and for strengthening of his lungs, so that now his parents can hold him. We pray for continued strength 
and against infection. We think of Karen and Steve Sluice and Jason Lydon asking for healing and recovery. We pray for our family members uh, separated from their parents in hospitals, nursing homes, and detention camps in both death and life. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Lord, significant decisions are being made and will be made that in induce fear and anxiety. We lift up the Lubers family as they care for Ellen. We hold up all those making medical decisions. We pray for families burdened by the choices of sending their children to school or educating them at home. We pray for eighth graders starting high school who are not only entering a whole new school, but also entering a whole world of learning. In your light, we consider high school juniors and seniors trying to make college decisions, learning from home or in college classrooms, and possible loss of scholarship funds due to the discontinuation of sports, band, and other extracurriculars. We think, too, of young people soon to enter the work world and how it has changed as well in both the present and the future. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Help us, Lord, to open our hearts and minds to the everyday realities that many people face in unsafe neighborhoods within systems that put them at a disadvantage. Open our ears to their stories and open our mouths to speak words that reflect the teachings of Jesus. Nothing can separate us from God's love. That is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And now, dear friends, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. <laughs>